Hey guys, welcome back to the show, to the channel, I guess, where we look at the truth of your psychology, figure out what's really going on. There's a lot of people out there, especially on YouTube, talking about mindset. You need the right mindset. And then there's a smaller portion of people in the psychology self-help industry, this multi-billion dollar industry conglomerate that's run by academia mostly. And if it's not explicitly run by academia, then it is mostly influenced by academia. That's the mindset that does all the influence of cognitive behavioral therapy. So we have CBT on the one hand, that makes your problem very clear, although it doesn't go that deep. And then on the other hand, we have the psychodynamic aspect of the field, which is much smaller, but they don't help either because while they do get to the foundational, fundamentally what your problem is, it's not that clear, it's more vague. <clears throat> so what we need is a way to really conceptualize your problem, not the surface, not just how the problem presents as a thought, emotion, or behavior, but what causes that thought, what causes that emotion, what causes that behavior. Get really clear about that, bring enough awareness to what that fundamental issue is. Work on that, and then <clears throat> whatever disruptive thought, emotion, or behavior you have more or less takes care of itself with enough awareness. I mean, that's the, in a sense, the definition of awareness. If you were aware of what the problem was, then you would simply change it. <clears throat> and then maybe you would read a mindset, mindset self-help book. I mean, you don't even need that. Just go to a, some Mindset Bros Twitter account and you'll be able to change the issue. But if you try to change it and you can't, if you want to make a decision that you don't make or you can't stop making decisions that you want to stop making, you go to change that decision and it doesn't work, or maybe if it works, it only works for a couple days or a week at most, or as long as it's inconsistent, or even if it's painful, <clears throat> if it's even a painful decision, you have to white knuckle your way through it, then it's an unconscious issue. You've got to figure out exactly what's going on in your unconscious. And then the issue takes care of itself. How do we do that? Well, we first define exactly what emotions are and through this definition of what emotions are and how they work, how they present, how they manifest, I guess that's a big Gen Z word, how they manifest in different ways in your life. Then we can, once we understand that, then we can talk through them, bring awareness to <clears throat> our emotions and emotions are ultimately the foundation of our behavior. Today we're going to talk about a tweet that I made a couple weeks ago and I got some great responses to it seems to be, well, maybe not confusion, misunderstanding, and I think people get what I'm going to say here. People understand exactly what I'm going to say. Nothing I'm going to say here is that new, but I think it's something that is just outside or just on the edge of our cultural consciousness, right? There's that. Sometimes it's a fine line. Sometimes it's more of a bigger gray area, the line between your conscious, what you're aware of, and your unconscious, what you're unaware of. And I think this is maybe more of a gray area bigger, uh, not so razor sharp line between these two. Um, so let's talk about this and, you know, in talking about this one specific issue, let's shed more light on how our psychology works <clears throat> so we can ultimately manage it, so we can use it for our own ends as opposed to it using us for its own ends. So the tweet that I made is, I consider it unethical to purposely make somebody feel better about themselves. Unpopular opinion, you know, that meme. I, I consider, it, consider it unethical to purposely make someone feel better about themselves. 
I got some responses to this that were along the lines of, oh, you're just being controversial. You're just, I kind of get what you're saying, but you're saying it in a controversial way. Is it really unethical? Yeah, I actually think it is unethical to purposefully make someone feel better about themselves. I think there's a fundamental misconception here uh, about uh, not only what it takes to form a healthy relationship, but what it takes for people to change. And I think these two things that we ultimately get incorrect here in this thing that we call American culture, or I would even broaden out to Western culture, these two, it's, it's not a misunderstanding so much, but just the lack of clarity about what it really takes to change and what it takes to connect with somebody, what it takes to form a healthy attachment. You know, I've said before, if I had to sum up what's going on in America culturally, that I think maybe presents as what we would say some cultural divide. It is, I, I could put it in two words, attachment disorder. We do not know how to form attachments in a healthy way. Or we kind of do, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. There's vagueness around it, right? It's a fundamental problem. Like I was saying in the intro, it was a fundamental problem, but there's vagueness around it. We can't get specific about it. So we can apply it to our lives sometimes Maybe if we saw a healthy portrayal of it in popular culture in a movie or a television show and it is out there. Um, but we can't do it definitively. We don't know exactly what we're doing. So let's bring clarity to these two things. What it takes for somebody to change and what it means to connect with somebody. And this will bring clarity to what I really mean by the statement of I consider it unethical, immoral to purposefully make somebody... <clears throat> feel better about themselves. So I got some, I, I got three good responses to this on Twitter and let's just go through these three responses and I'll, and I'll give my replies and through this we'll, we'll figure out what's going on when I present this unpopular opinion. Thankfully it was an unpopular opinion that was actually unpopular, right? I mean nothing's more annoying when you see unpopular opinion and then you see an opinion that pretty much everybody agrees with or everybody on your side of Twitter or your side of the cultural divide agrees with, it's not, it's not that unpopular. In fact, yeah, unpopular opinion, what you think is your unpopular opinion is actually quite popular and the fact that you think it is unpopular uh, shows, indicates you to be some normie dork to use more Twitter usages. Okay, so the first response I got to this tweet is, if this other person's self-assessment or self-esteem is lower than is rational, then it would be ethical to help them clearly see their own worth. And my response is, well, what do you mean by worth? You know, there's two points here. The first one is about pain. The myth is that is often, you know, promulgated, perpetuated by mindset bros, by cognitive behavioral therapy, they don't know that they are the, the slaves of cognitive behavioral therapy and what's going on in academia. You know, it's funny, a lot of mindset guys, self-help guys will think that they're breaking up from traditional academic psychology because there's a lot of corruption in academic psychology, and there is, and they go and just promulgate all these mindset techniques, these self-help techniques, you know, affirmations. Um, it's like, dude, you, you are just repeating, <laughs> you are just repeating the, the hegemony going on in academia, that's one of them, cognitive behavioral therapy. The other is critical race theory. 
and I think maybe next week, I don't want to make any promises, next week I'm going to do a presentation on how cognitive behavioral therapy actually leads to, no, how cognitive behavioral therapy causes critical race theory. There are these two, you know, power, uh, powerhouses in modern academia, fully supported by the APA, which I think is like a good touchstone for what's going on in psychology, academia, you know, like culture. Like, like what's going on in academic, in academic psychology culturally, go look at what the APA says is good to do. And they say cognitive behavioral therapy is a therapy that works. Uh, we're not going to, we're not going to approve of a program unless it is at least mostly influenced by cognitive behavioral therapy. And then there's critical race theory. And on the surface, you would think these two things are just, yeah, just two different schools and it, it just is like a hodgepodge. But I would say it's actually the cognitive behavioral therapy inevitably, invariably causes critical race theory. So tune into that. That's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, so there's two things going on here is, um, yeah, what do you mean by clearly see somebody's own worth and then... Uh, yeah, well, let's just start there. So the big myth, I think, is that you need to feel good to change. And in a way, this is true. You do need to feel good on a broad, abstract level, which doesn't necessarily mean feeling good in the short term. Right? A lot of times, in fact, every time I, I look back on my life and every time I've changed drastically over a relatively short period of time, I did not feel good about myself. I was not in a good mood, but in a way I was, I, I mean, I wasn't in a good mood. And, and if you ask me in the moment, probably at the time, I'd say, I don't feel good about myself, but overall my perception of who I was, you know, metaphysically as a man or a boy becoming a man or to whatever extent I am a man now, right? There's always work to do. I felt good about that. I felt good on an abstract level of what my challenges were, what I could do to overcome them, but I was fully aware that my challenges were my challenges and nobody was going to come save me. Now, in the moment, that doesn't feel good necessarily. That isn't typically what we would you know, ascribe as feeling good in our culture, which is mostly the absence of pain, you know, being in a pleasant pleasant you know our, our projection of what heaven could possibly be is you know sitting on a warm fluffy cloud and having all your needs taken care of you from my perspective that is, it does not feel good and if you have any disagreement there I would before you disagree with me and make a comment I would say go watch the Twilight Zone episode and a nice place to visit a nice place to visit uh, I got still getting over a head cold here I'm going to try to mumble less than I usually do hopefully a little bit less probably still gonna mumble a lot so go check out the the Twilight Zone episode a nice place to visit and let me know what you think about our common conception of what heaven could be um, so if somebody's self-assessment is lower than is rational first of all there's nothing nothing you're gonna say in that moment to help them Yeah, how do you not help? So, so it would be ethical, according to this guy who made this response, it would be ethical to help them clearly see their own self-worth. First of all, there's nothing you could really say in the moment to help them see their own self-worth, right? That's not really where somebody's self-worth comes from. If you say, hey, you got a nice life here. Oh, you know, I know you're upset about this thing, but maybe it's not so bad because you got all these other things going on over here. That doesn't really change somebody's self-worth. 
what changes somebody's self-worth is they learn how their psychology works eventually and then they're able to engage in a process where they're able to see how much self-worth they have over time and the other thing is i think you need to be in acute pain to improve your life i want to live in a world where we don't need to be in pain to improve our lives uh, where we're driven by the carrot so not so much the stick but you know what the stick is really helpful and sometimes you need to feel your own pain in order to change in the way you need to change and perhaps somebody's assessment of themselves is lower than is rational. Maybe that's true, but maybe that's also where they need to be in order for them to change. The other fallacy here is why... So you see somebody in pain, you see somebody who has a lower self-assessment than is rational. This is, an, I think, another indication of what I said in the intro. This is an indication of the attachment disorder. You think it is ethical to go in and your goal is to change somebody's perception of themselves to let them see, even if it's the truth, that their life is better than they think it is. And I would argue that's part of the attachment disorder. That's part of, you're, you're in there to change somebody and how they feel as opposed to connect with them. That's part of connecting with them is understanding where you do this in your own life, where your own self-assessment is perhaps lower then is rational. Can you identify that and talk with them about it? You say, well, they're the one with the problem. I don't want to take the focus. To, I don't want to bring the focus to me. Are you bringing the focus to you? Or are you keeping the focus on them while talking about yourself? As Hugo says, don't you know when I talk about myself, I ultimately talk about you. What's Hugo saying when he says this? He says, everybody has the same emotional experience. So for you to go in from the from the outside or really from above, from your perspective, because you know what's rational and he doesn't. And even if you're right, it doesn't matter, but you, you know what's rational and he doesn't, so you want to swoop in and let him see what is rational, what is real. When, on, when really what you are doing is denying the fact that you do the same thing. Of course you do. You're a human. I do, this, I do that 12 times before breakfast. <clears throat> yeah, and what's wrong with pain? You know, a huge misconception about therapy, and the reason why I made this tweet in the first place is because I was, in my first graduate program that I was in, I was trained in a humanistic, Rogerian, from, you know, the Carl Rogers approach of, of unconditional positive regard, and it was all about making somebody, I mean, there is an element to that that I did take out of the program that was really helpful, but there's only a piece of that that's helpful. The negative side of that is, a therapist now when they're trained in that approach and I'm not saying Carl Rogers says this explicitly but he's not aware of what he says enough to differentiate between the healthy kind of positive regard and validation versus the unhealthy kind the healthy kind is yes I validate what you're feeling it exists so let's manage it the unhealthy kind which doesn't get differentiated that well you know go, going back to the vagueness issue the unhealthy kind is, well, I'm here to make you feel better about yourself. I want you to feel better about yourself at the end of the session. Uh, yeah, I want you to feel better at the end than you did at the beginning. That's kind of the goal. Or people interpret that as the goal. Now, if you're a Rogerian humanistic therapist, you're going to comment on this. Oh, no, that's not the goal. That's not what anybody says. I, maybe that's not what everybody says from that approach. But that, that sure does seem uh, to happen a lot. You know, when I was in training, not in this first 
graduate program at another graduate program. I mean, I, I was working with therapists who are driving clients around town trying to get them like nice clothes for their job interview. I mean, if that's not a codependence, lack of healthy attachment, I don't know what is. So the issue here is, yeah, you got to feel pain. And I, I'm totally okay with clients feeling better about themselves after a session with me. And I'm also okay with them feeling worse, feeling agitated, feeling frustrated, frustrated with me. That's fine. Be angry at me. I, you know, that's, that may be healthy. At least we're not unconscious of the anger anymore. We can use that. Go out and improve your life to spite me at first. That's a stick and it's not even a healthy stick, but whatever, we'll take it. We'll take it if it's something. We'll get you to the place where you're regulated so you can be motivated by the carrot. But right now, that's not reality. You gotta feel that great reservoir of pain and resentment, frustration, anger. You're, you're agitated, you're slightly agitated, and maybe you're not sleeping as well. Oh well, too bad. That's great energy. You know, that is great dopamine you're going to need. I'm guessing once you feel that agitated energy, you're not going to have, you know, whatever your uh, energy drink. You're going to be drinking a lot less bang, right? <clears throat> so, yes, of course it's good to clearly see your own worth, but this is ancillary. This is step five. And you, if you just try to go in there and, and make somebody see their own self-worth in the moment... It's not going to work. You're not connecting with them. You're not. The only thing you can do is help them with their own awareness by talking about, you know, by becoming more aware of yourself. That's the most you could possibly do. And you're not doing it to make them feel better about themselves. You're doing it to connect with them because without connection, we don't even have brains. We don't even have these huge 100 billion plus neuron processors. That, I mean, we need a different kind of technology that we don't even understand in order to even be able to understand them in the first place. Not all neuroscience is bogus, but a lot of it is because, you know, the technology is just not there. So that's the first response I got. Um, yeah, they, they don't, their, their self-assessment is lower than is rational. Good. Maybe that's where they need to be. You see how that's unethical to, to rob them of that great, we call it negative, there's nothing negative about it. There's no negative emotional experience. The only thing that's, quote, negative is what you do with that emotional experience. So the other response I got, we have three here. This is the second one. The other response I got is, hey, what's negative about noticing somebody has exceptional shoes, for instance, and you tell them that they're nice? How about it when somebody messes up or makes a mistake and you say, hey, man, you'll fix it. You'll do better next time. What, what could possibly be the downside to this? Well, I'll tell you the downside to this is, yeah, uh, if you think they're going to do better next time, if you really think that, then maybe that's a good thing to say. But why are you saying it? You know, what's the intention? Is the intention because you really do think they're going to do better next time? That's what you're thinking about their situation? Or is the intention simply to make them feel better? Is the intention only to make them happier? I mean, maybe they won't do better next time. Maybe what they need is your honest feedback in the moment. Same thing with their shoes. Why are you telling somebody that they have nice shoes? Is it really because you think they have nice shoes? Well, then that's a great thing to say. 
But honestly, a lot of the times, and this is like uh, chick uh, gab talk, I just noticed this because I, I was at the gym and this girl was coming out of the, the locker room after a workout. And, you know, she was all changed and uh, dressed up, I guess you could say. You know, very much contrast whatever workout that she did prior. And I heard some other girls say, oh, you look so cute. Now, I don't know. Maybe I come from at a different perspective. She did not look cute. She actually looked like a total mess. You could tell she tried, but she looks like a total mess. And I could just tell in that situation that the other girl said she looked cute because she just thought it was a nice thing to say. And she actually looks terrible, but I don't, you know, I don't want to make her feel bad. I want to make her feel good, right? That's the intention. That's indicative of the attachment disorder that we're dealing with in this thing we call Western culture. I want to make her feel good. So I'm going to say whatever I can to make her feel good. I think Amy Schumer has a funny sketch about this. I mean, mostly I find <laughs> Amy Schumer kind of gross, but um, that's, uh, I think she has some funny sketches and that's one of them. It's just girls caught up in this loop of validating, oh, you look so cute. No, you look cute. I look ugly. No, you look cute. Actually, I should have not a reference to Amy Schumer. I'm going to cut that part out of the video. There's a very funny uh, Futurama bit about this when they go to the uh, planet of the Amazonians. Um, Tonk, you look fat. No, Tonk, you look good. I look fat or, you know, whatever. Um, so, yeah. What's the downside of saying this? Well, there's not necessarily a downside of telling somebody that they have nice shoes. But what what's the intention right and until we're clear about the intention until it's an honest pure intention of if you really think they have nice shoes then tell them that they have nice shoes that's great and that's you know what you feel like you need to say in the moment but you see the dynamic has totally changed in both situations one person is telling another person they have nice shoes but it's you know the intention the dynamic is completely different the person who says the other person has nice shoes in the first situation is out of touch with themselves. They're out of touch with themselves and they just want to make the other person feel better. In the second situation, they are in touch with themselves and truly creating a connection with somebody if they do in fact have nice shoes. Um, And I think this is the same for not just, you know, giving somebody a compliment, but same for a personal relationship or the development of a personal relationship. I think a lot of, for example, uh, people, if you go over to somebody's house for a dinner party, a lot of people have the goal of, I just want to make everybody there happy. I'm, I'm there to make people feel better and laugh and have fun. And that can be great, but also, you know, in a certain perspective, but if that's your main goal, then I think that's an issue. I think a healthier goal is I'm going to go over to this house and connect with people. I am going to connect. I am going to be honest about what's going on with me, see, you know, be honest about what I see going on and communicate that in a healthy way. That's the goal. And then whatever fun comes from that, that's all gravy right? That's ancillary. That is not the main goal because if that's not the main goal, then you're not really at the dinner party. Some performance of you, 
right? Some persona of you is at the dinner party. You're not really there. And then people go home after a three and a half hour dinner party and go, oh, I'm so exhausted. Being around people is so exhausting. Oh, I guess I'm just an introvert. No, you're not an introvert. You're just adapting to other people. Your, your goal is to get other people to like you and have fun. Your goal isn't to be yourself in a social situation. So of course it's going to be exhausting. You know, this is, and I see this all the time when uh, guys say, and, and you know, women say too, is, you know, I've been nothing but nice. You know, this is the nice guy syndrome. We all know this. Um, we all know that there's, it's not just a guy being nice, right? There's an element of immorality behind it. There's an element of hiding and concealing your intentions or agenda. And people say, well, I've just been nothing, nothing but nice to this person. I, I, I've put their needs before my own needs, and now they disrespect me. You know, they've walked all over my boundary. It's like, well, dude, what boundary? You never had a boundary in the first place. You're just out of touch with yourself. You don't have a self, so don't be too surprised when people don't treat you. Or when people treat you like you don't have a self. So what's wrong with telling somebody they have nice shoes? Well, do you really think they have nice shoes? What about when somebody makes a mistake? Well, do you think they just made a, a mistake? Or do you think something else is going on? Or are you just afraid? Are you just afraid to connect over that? Because we've all been in that situation where we think we're doing everything right. We think we're giving 100% or 110% as Lou says. And it's, we still mess up. And we still mess up over and over again. Maybe what you're doing, maybe what you're doing, and I guess I should have said this in the first point, is trying to distract yourself, not from, not trying to, to, you know, make the other person feel better about their life. Maybe what you're trying to do is you're trying to make them feel better. And that's usually, you're trying to make yourself feel better because you don't want to be reminded of the time when you've messed up 10 times something in a row and you tried really hard and then you just kind of gave up. You kind of rationalize it away like it's no big deal or I'm fine or I don't really need that anyways. You try to rationalize it away or that was just a first world problem. And that's painful. And when your buddy messes up and he's messed up 10 times in a row, maybe what you want, maybe in, uh, you're saying, hey, you'll do better next time. Maybe what you're really trying to do is distract yourself from your own pain. And I would say in my experience, Nine times, nine and a half times out of ten, that's exactly what's going on. You think you're trying to make somebody else feel better. Really what you're trying to do is distract yourself from your existential strife. And you're not going to have an identity. You know, all the stuff I talk about here, talking through your emotions, it's not going to work for you until you can really see where you do that. And I guarantee you do that. I do that. We all do that. You know, welcome to this cultural stew that we call attachment disorder. We got to face up to that and really be honest about what's going on and what our intention really is. And it's tough. It's tough because you can get really good at the whole persona show thing and you can go over to the dinner party and make somebody feel good and they're going to invite you out. And if they have, you know, uh, warriors tickets, uh, they're going to want you to use them and it's going to be great. And oh, that worked out. And then five years later, just like more and more existential strife, more and more depression. And you don't know what it is. Well, what it is, is, yeah, of course, why is there an existential strife? Why do we call it existential strife? Because it's just existence that you're in. 
but you're not even in it because you don't have a self. It just existence just takes hold of you. You know, the, that really great speech at the end of uh, Burden of Dreams um, by Werner Herzog. He has this really, I mean, I definitely go watch the entire documentary, but there's this really great speech at the end about, you know, just the chaos and the, immor not immorality, but the amorality of nature. And it just seeps in and takes over. And there's nothing beautiful about nature. He's, that, that is a symbolic representation of what an existential strife is. And, and it, nature seeps in, existence seeps in, because you don't have a boundary. Because you never regulated your emotions. Because whenever you go out to a dinner party and have a chance to really make a connection with somebody, it's just a shell. Or, ooh, we might have differing political opinions. I'm not going to bring that up because that's rude. No, it's only rude when you bring it up because you're uncomfortable with what you believe. If you're comfortable with what you believe, then you would bring it up in a healthy way. In a way that breeds connection, not disconnection. And we think, oh, look, there's this thing called this cultural divide going on. No, that's the divide. The divide is in you. That's where it starts. Like when Jung says, when the Iron Curtain came down, that's symbolic of what is going on in every human soul in the West. The Iron Curtain in our psyche. So that's why you don't just say somebody has nice shoes to say they have nice shoes. The other response I got, this is going to be a little bit shorter because I think it's, uh, but, but it's good to talk about, is... My tweet seems to be true on the surface that people can only change when they're ready. That's kind of what I'm saying. Um, but this doesn't apply to young children. Right? The statement of, <clears throat> uh, just to reminder what I said, uh, that it's unethical to purposely make somebody feel better about themselves. This does not apply to young children, so it can't be a universal statement. Well, true. It's not a universal statement, but it's a universal statement among adults. I mean, look, when you go into ethics class, you don't say, uh, you, you don't base it off of how you treat children. Because a, a human ethic of how you treat children would be <clears throat> to do exactly what is unethical, I would argue, in the rest of your life. It's like when you're around a child, you don't really have a sense of self because they, they can't deal with that, right? You don't share your negative emotions. Well, you know, it depends. We'll get, we'll get into it. You don't dump that on them. If, if you have an issue in the moment, you don't dump that on them because they can't deal with it, right? And, and this is part of, a, you know, this is what narcissistic mothers do is they take their adult problems and talk to their nine-year-old son about it, but, you know, their husband's away so that they don't have a man to talk to. So they're dumping all these work problems on their nine-year-old son. And, and what the, does the nine-year-old son do? You know, he doesn't have a sense of self. So all, all he can do what he invariably naturally does is, well, I exist to make mommy feel better about herself. And the mom can say, well, no, that's not what I want. Well, I know that's not what you want, but you don't understand what's going on. So when you talk to your son about your work problems, your, God, God forbid, your freaking dating problems, <clears throat> that's what ends up happening. So yeah, you know, an ethics for being around, especially young children, I'll say younger than four, is uh, put their needs first, do everything that they need, do, do whatever you can to make them feel better in the moment. Um, well, that's, that's what being a nice guy is. That's a you know, typical nice guy, pushover. You think you're being nice, but really you're trying to cover up for your own pain because you don't know how to communicate with anybody else because as we covered in the previous point. So no, this doesn't apply to children, but Nico McKeon Ethics, you know, I would argue the greatest book on ethics ever written doesn't apply to children. It applies to the young men. That's who it was written for. It was written for Aristotle's son, Nico. 
That's why it's called that in Comichian Ethics. Um, well, yeah, of course it doesn't uh, apply to young children. But I would argue, boy, I'm, you know, I'm a huge proponent of any kind of Montessori positive parenting. Uh, if you find a book on that, like Montessori parenting, how to create a Montessori home, positive parenting, I think that will steer 99% of parents in the right direction. But it is not being applied well. <laughs> I, I see it. I live in a, you know, very uh, Swipple area, I guess you could say. You guys know what Swipple is? It's this meme from like the early odds, stuff white people like. You know, my, my favorite example is you go to a restaurant and they don't have uh, decimal points on the menu. It's just how much is the lobster bisque? It's 18. Uh, not like 1850. It's just stuff like that. You know, I, I live in very much an area like that. And I see people doing the positive parenting thing of validating, constantly putting their child's needs first. In a sense, always trying to make their child feel happy and feel good about themselves even after four. I would say four is the hard cutoff point. Really, it's from two to four depending on your child, you know, maybe depending on how neurotic they are, and maybe if they're a little bit more neurotic, I, I do think that is somewhat innate, maybe a little bit closer to four, but then you have the issue of you don't want to wear the kid gloves around somebody just because they have an issue, just because they are a little bit more neurotic, so you go, oh, oh, Matt, you know, young, young Matthew, he's, he's a little bit, he's a little bit sensitive, so we're going to be a little bit nicer to him, and, and we're still going to baby him until he's six, seven, and eight. Well, that's just going to perpetuate the problem, perpetuate and aggravate the problem. I was just at the park walking around, and it was a birthday party, and this kid was probably eight or nine, who was turning, turning eight or nine, and I don't, I didn't see the conflict, but one of the kids started to cry, and this was clearly an eight-year-old, nine-year-old boy. It, he may have been ten, and he's crying, bawling his eyes out, and what is this dad doing? You know, the, the kid, the dad sitting on a park bench, the eight, nine, possibly 10-year-old boy is straddling his father, you know, like a baby. You know, you know like, like you wear the, the, the moms wear the, the straps or, or whatever, like the, the hammock thing that, that moms wrap around themselves. You know, for an infant, that's, that's when, when uh, you know, your, your wife goes to the grocery store with an infant when she's three months old. That's what you do. So, like, the face is right there on the bosom, you know, the, the really safe place, which it, it feels really good to be there. But hopefully you don't, <laughs> way into the adulthood, it still really feels really good to have your face right there. Um, and hope, hopefully you don't use that to uh, regulate your emotion all the time. Um, still feels really good, though. And that's what this father was doing for his son. And I know what happened. I know this father is probably about my age, an older millennial, perhaps Gen X, and he grew up in a, in a uh, house where the parents were maybe more strict. Not strict so much, but, oh, you got a bad grade on, on the spelling test? Well, hey, don't cry about it. I guess you got to study next time. Okay, we're going to have this regimented you know, spelling test study time. Oh, you know, just total disregard for the emotions. And now the pendulum I see swinging. He read a positive parenting book because he, he's Swipple. He read a positive parenting book, Montessori, swinging back the other way. He lacks differentiation. There's still some vagueness there in how to apply it. And he's applying it to his eight, nine, perhaps 10-year-old son. And uh, that is totally damaging. He is old enough. He's not old enough to be an adult, but he is old enough to start regulating emotions on his own. 
like an adult would. Of course, you talk with your son if he's upset. You talk to them about what he's feeling, what's going on, you know, what happened. Tell me about it. But I'm not there as the father. I'm not there to make you feel better. I am there to communicate with you about what's going on. And maybe 8, 9, 10 is a little bit young to share what's going on with you and connecting. You know, it depends on the situation. Depends a little bit on the child. You know, this is a very situation specific, but that, that would be way healthier. Right? You're not dumping your issue on your son, but you're talking with him about how you feel frustrated sometimes. And yeah, it's uncomfortable. I see what you're going through. But they're there, feel better, that is perpetuating, aggravating this infant mind. And that kid in 10, 20 years, he's, he's going to be in a position where he's telling you what to do, and he's still going to be an infant. And you say, why is my boss such a narcissist? That's why, because he can't manage his issues on his own. So, yeah, you say this applies to young children. Sure, infants and babies... But honestly, from two to four, it's time for the child to start regulating on their own. It, it, you don't go in, yes, when your child's two and, you know, I, I got a 14-month-old here. She falls, she hits her head. Obviously, she's not hurt. You know, she's just like embarrassed. <laughs> she's just embarrassed. Like, ah, I can't believe I'm such an idiot. I fell and I hit my head. I feel like an idiot. Uh, yeah, <laughs> very much. This just pops into my head. I guess I haven't gotten over this. I was in college. <laughs> And, you know, it's uh, winter and there's ice. And I'm, I'm walking to class or something. I'm walking by this girl who I like, which I don't, I forget. I, I remember who it was, but I mean, whatever. It was college. I, I was, I talked with any girl for 30 seconds and I fell in love with her. And I'm walking by this girl. I'm like, oh, hi, you know, Stacy, whatever her name is. As I'm saying, as I'm like waving like a dork probably, I slip on the ice and I fall like right on my ass, you know. And it's just like that frustration in the moment. Like I didn't cry, thankfully, but it's just like, oh. God, I'm such a retard. You know, you have that kind of, you know, that's what my 14 month old is dealing with. It doesn't hurt. It's just, I'm, I'm an idiot. And so you should start to cry. So she's 14 months. So you go, yeah. There, you know, I'm trying not to laugh because it's hilarious. But you're like, oh, yeah, they're there. It's okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you know, it's soothing, you know, physical touch, hug, all that stuff. But when she's five, it's like, yeah, I understand you're feeling pain. Yeah, it sucks. But I'm not there to make you feel better. I'm, I'm there to connect with you. Right? And I think that's what's going on here. So, yeah, look, the, the takeaway <clears throat> the takeaway here is I think too often, I mean, there's lots of takeaways here. But, but the main takeaway, whatever popped in my mind when I was preparing for this video, thinking about what I was going to say is um, we go into a situation. Let me just say this. We go into a potentially difficult situation or a situation where we feel maybe a little anxious or a job interview. Like I think this is how people mess up job, job interviews. I, I, you know, I'm notorious for being unemployable and notorious for not having a real job. And I think part of the reason is I thought going into a job interview, oh, I'm there to make them like me. And that's true depending on the job. Um, but... If it's not an entry-level position, it's, you know, you're not there to make the other person like you. You're there to connect. And I think we go in with this, you know, it's like a first date. Maybe that's a better example. First date, oh, I'm, I just want to make the other person like me. So I have the most power in that situation so I can decide what I want to do for the second date. Decide whether I want to sleep with this girl. So I just want her to like me. So I'm going to just put in this performance to get her to like me. And 
you've lost. You've totally lost. That can work, but even when it works, you still lost. I had that other tweet this week. Play stupid games, power. Go after power in a relationship. That's a stupid game. You get stupid prizes, codependence. Even if you have power, quote-unquote, in a relationship, it's inevitably a codependent relationship, and that's just going to suck the life out of you, and you're going to think, well, maybe I'm just meant to be single. <laughs> just like the person who comes back from the dinner party all all tired. Oh, maybe I'm just an introvert. And oh, being around people, it's it's exhausting. No, it's exhausting when you're doing the burden of the dreams, Warner Hard Sock speech at the end of that movie. The goal is to connect. The goal, how can you connect with other people? Your experiences, your situations are different, but the emotions that you go through are exactly the same. To quote Hugo again, because it's that important. Don't you know? When I talk about myself, I ultimately talk about you. He means you all. Second person plural. Everybody who reads my book, I'm talking about you because we are all the same. Right? And I would argue this does make few people feel better. This does, of course, make people feel better. Maybe not short term. Can lead to conflict short term and people won't like you when you do this. Let's make no mistake about that. But long term, it is the only option. Now, how do you talk through emotions, right? That's something that we can help you with here. You do a, we do free consultations. If you want to find out more about what we do, there's a structure of how emotions work. Because emotions have a certain structure, we talk through them in a certain way. And because emotions have a predictable response, especially dysregulated emotions, we can nail down your fundamental emotional issue to, and make it very specific. So I want to get you to the place where, you know, maybe not every issue in your life is handled. That may take a long time, but I can at least get you to the place where you know exactly what your issue is. It, it is duh-duh clear about what's going on. And when it comes up in your life, you feel it. Like, oh, here it is right now. This is my issue. You know, 80-20 rule. This is, uh, you know, 20% of, you know, the issue that causes 80% of the problem. You know, whatever it is. This is, it's more like 99-1 rule. This is it. This is everything. I'm just going to focus on this, bring as much awareness to this. Uh, you know, Animus, we have all these tools. We have more tools than you ever need to. So we have the issue to like bring awareness to it. Um, you know, dig it up, so to speak. Just pour these tools on um, and you become more aware. And then the issue takes care of itself so yeah free consultations animusempire.com slash schedule thank you guys and remember that it's not whether you feel good or whether you feel bad it's how well you can relate with your unconscious